This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 25th of November. And we had some more exciting vaccine-related news in the last couple of days, Norman. The AstraZeneca vaccine from Oxford University has released results saying that it's an average of 70.4% effective, um, which is less than what we were hearing about the other vaccines that have recently been announcing interim results from Pfizer and Moderna. So is the Oxford vaccine like the bad one? Or is it just the way they've crunched the numbers looking a bit different to the way Pfizer and Moderna have crunched their numbers? Yeah. And Sean writes in, so we're getting the S dot dot T one. (laughs) Thanks. You'll have to force me to take that one. Nord, Pfizer or Moderna. I'll be first in line. Stuff the Oxford AstraZeneca one. Who trusts the UK now? Anyway, thank you, Sean, Sean. for that. Sean, next time you send in a question, just tell us what you mean. You know, don't beat about the bush. (laughs) So here's the story of the Oxford Astra vaccine report. So this is the problem releasing by press release. And what they did in this press release was really naughty. They gave an average of 70%, but it was an average over two separate trials. You can't do that. You cannot average two separate trials with different objectives, different doses and so on, and say your average was was 70%. And you could only assume that what they were trying to hide was that the full dose trial, which was the the larger of the two, was actually quite disappointing compared to the 90-95% results that Pfizer and Moderna have been reporting for the mRNA vaccine. Where they get the average coming up a bit is actually what at first sight seems counterintuitive. So you've got one trial which is a big one, which is two full doses, and you've got a smaller trial where they did a half dose to begin with, and then a full dose late, about a month later. And what they got with that one was 90%. So similar to the, to the other two. That's right. But effective, remember, this was effective in preventing COVID-19 disease. We still don't know whether it prevents infection. Now, you say, well, why would a lower dose one work? Well, it's actually quite conceivable that the lower dose one is the better way of giving it because... The vaccine works by using a chimpanzee cold virus, which has been inactivated so it doesn't cause disease, to carry the genetic message inside the cell for the cell to produce the spike protein that's going to generate an immune response in the body that will have memory to fight the infection. So that's how it does it. Now the chimpanzee virus, whilst it doesn't develop disease in the person, our immune system does recognize this virus and generate antibodies to it. So what can happen is that you give the full dose in the first dose, the body gets antibodies to the chimpanzee virus, and then when you give the second dose, it doesn't work. Because your body's fighting off the vector, really. That's right, the the train or the truck or the taxi, whatever you want to call it, in terms of the metaphor, taking the cell into the car. So in other words, it blocks the driver from taking the from carrying the the vaccine into the cell. So the the lower dose one doesn't generate a strong response to the chimpanzee virus, but still pump primes the immune system against the vaccine, against the spike protein, I should say, so that the second vaccine does work. So this is actually good news. So it could be that it's just as good 
And it'd be a nice one to be just as good because it's going to be a lot cheaper. It's going to be available in the developing world. Astra has said that they're not going to take any profits on it, at least during the pandemic. And transport's in the fridge, so it's easy to transport and resilient. So you can't average here. So the, the 70% is completely misleading. Double full dose, pretty lousy. It's half dose plus full dose, pretty good. And that directs your attention towards where it should go. So why would they even bother reporting the vaccine delivery version that was only 70% or 60% or whatever it was? Why would not just say that the lower dose is the way to go and it has a, a, a efficacy of 90%? Well, they've got to be transparent about it. But the, if they were going to be fully transparent, which you were when you could actually read through it, um, they would have said double dose 60% and then everybody going, oh, that's not very good. But half dose, full dose. But then it was a smaller trial with less certain results. So it's the problem with press releases. And that this is going to become clearer as time goes on. But, so, Sean, this could be a pretty good vaccine. So hold your horses. So, but on that, like Sean's point is that like we have an agreement to distribute the AstraZeneca one in Australia if it proves safe and effective, which it looks like, you know, it's inching towards that. The other two vaccines have both reported 90, 95% efficacy and they're both mRNA vaccines. So that's a different technology to this chimpanzee virus. Are those vaccines inherently better? Like is the technology a better way of fighting COVID? Not necessarily. Essentially, the three vaccines all do the same thing. They all take genetic material into the cell to tell the cell to produce the spike protein, the docking mechanism for the virus, to the, into the body. So they all do the same thing. So you should expect them actually all to perform roughly in a roughly similar way. The problem with the AstraZeneca vaccine is the chimpanzee virus if the body develops antibodies to it. And therefore... Um, that's a, that's a barrier there with that one. But the good thing about the AstraZeneca one is that it's cheaper if it's just as effective and very much easier to distribute. In theory, they, they should all be equally effective because they're doing the same job. So we've got a lot of questions about vaccines today. So let's take a few of them. This one comes from a frontline healthcare worker. So she's saying she'll probably have first access to the vaccine early next year, but she's also pregnant due in May. Is there any evidence of safety in a pregnant population? Should she wait till she's given birth before she has the vaccine? I think for a lot of trials, pregnant women have not been included. So I'm not sure we're, not, I'm not sure we're going to know the safety in pregnant women. Um, they've focused on the elderly and people with other problems, but they're not, they, I don't think that children and pregnant women have been included in many of the trials, if any. So I don't think we're going to know that yet. And I suspect when they get approval, um, the approval will not include pregnant women. So Thomas has written in saying, after 11 months of no proven vaccines, we've suddenly gotten results of three effective vaccines in just the last two weeks. Does Norman think this timing is simply a coincidence? No, it's not, because um, what you're seeing here is uh, technologies that came to fruition round about the same time. They went into, the, um, into trials round about the same time, and you would expect them all to be reporting round about this time. Um, there's another vaccine that's due to report, the Novavax, which is one of the four that we've uh, got to deal with. Uh, that's still to report, and that's a little bit behind. And the University of Queensland vaccine is a few months behind the others. So, no, it's not a coincidence. It's just they all started round about the same time. 
So yesterday, Victoria said goodbye to its last active case of coronavirus in literally months, which is such an incredible milestone. So now that we can sort of look back with without fear, uh, what do we know about what the second wave looked like in Victoria? You've got some statistics, Norman, on where people got it and who was most likely to have had it. Yes, I was at a seminar yesterday and had some of that data presented, but also presented from New South Wales as well. And it was quite interesting. So The majority of outbreaks of clusters in Victoria were, in fact, from workplaces, meatworks, but also aged care and hospitals. So workplaces were, in fact, a prominent way that people got those. Fascinating data on masks. When you see the graphs and you see where masks were introduced, they did have an effect as well as restrictions. So the effect of masks actually was quite significant in Victoria. And interestingly, in terms, and these are th- these, this is a topic that we have discussed on Coronacast, is that 50% of cases in Victoria were people who were overseas born. And that just shows you the problem that they had communicating with communities whose, you know, where English wasn't necessarily their first language and where they had their own community leaders and not necessarily part of mainstream media and so on. So it just illustrates what was going on in terms of a community dynamic in Melbourne. Also, we had New South Wales data presented. In New South Wales, during this time, there's been 55 clusters with an average of about four cases per cluster. And that the average length of time that somebody was an active case if they were positive was 17.5 days, which again is what we've discussed in Coronacast in the past is that, you know, that's an average time, um, but you know, it can be much, much longer than that. And overseas, they were talking 18 to 21 days being the time that you remain positive with the virus. Well, so interesting. Congratulations, Victoria. And that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. Yeah, and congratulations from me too. And well done, South Australia. You're doing well. If you've got a question or a comment to make, please write in. All of you go to abc.net.au slash coronacast. Go to ask a question and mention coronacast on the way through so that we can pick it up. We'll see you tomorrow. See you then.